Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. Planning an international trip and want to learn the language of your destination? Then check out the language learning program Rosetta Stone on desktop or as an app. Rosetta Stone is designed to immerse you in the language you're learning. Plus, the True Accent feature even gives you feedback on your pronunciation. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com today. This episode of the Bowery Boys is brought to you by Clarkson Potter and 10 Speed Press, publishers of Alexander Hamilton, an impeccably researched graphic biography of the man who inspired the hit Broadway musical, and Deal or Duel, a revolutionary card game that pits your survival instincts and spending savvy against the founding fathers and mothers. Perfect for history lovers, Deal or Duel and Alexander Hamilton are available wherever books are sold. Today's show is also supported by Open Campus, the new school's progressive approach to continuing education. Explore online and on-campus programs designed to satisfy every type of learner with courses in art and design with Parsons, management, media, writing, and more. Open Campus is more than a course. It's a new kind of network. Fall courses begin on August 28th. Enroll today at opencampus.newschool.edu. The Bowery Boys, Episode 233, The Roaring Twenties, Chapter 1, Mayor Jimmy Walker. Hey, it's the Bowery Boys. Hey. Support for the Bowery Boys is provided by our listeners. Join us for as little as a dollar a month by visiting patreon.com slash boys. Hi there. Welcome to the Bowery Boys. This is Greg Young. And this is Tom Myers. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to our 2017 Summer Series. This year, we are tackling a unique decade in New York City history, the Roaring Twenties, the Jazz Age. Yeah, we were in the mood for a little summer mini-series. And I mean, I guess, granted, we are getting a kind of late start to it because it's August. But but what better way to, you know, sweat out the end of the summer than with the Roaring Twenties? Because this is a story that has something for everyone. We've got political scandals. We've got chorus girls, crooked officials, Tammany Hall, Broadway musicals, Greg. Now, all your favorite aspects of the Jazz Age will be threaded through this series. All the music and the lights of Broadway and all that bathtub gin. Right, bathtub gin, because, of course, this will all take place during Prohibition. But in this three-part series, we're tackling the subject in a bit of an unconventional way. Right, we're not just giving a chronology of the decade. We're going to be telling the story of the 1920s through the perspectives of two main characters. Two main characters, but no shortage of supporting characters. Colorful characters Mm -hmm. will be making appearances both in this show, the next show, and the third part of the miniseries that will kind of tie things up in a most explosive manner. For our first chapter, we're going to look at the man who was the mayor of New York City for the latter half of the 1920s. His name, 
was Jimmy Walker. Now, it is interesting that we're telling the story of the 1920s by starting with a man who wasn't even mayor until 1926. But he was on the scene, oh, definitely, be well before then. Totally. He was already in politics and very, very well known. And let's face it, the man who preceded him in the office, Mayor Highland, was just no fun <laughs> at all. So we wanted to jump right to Jimmy. But Mr. Walker embodies the jazz age in so many aspects many of the good glamorous ones and of course many of the unsavory ones as well for many new yorkers and people around the country who knew him walker personified the carefree spirit of the decade and of the city that he ran and by telling his story, we're really telling the story of the city during this period. Right. So, listener, hop along as we hit the town with Jimmy Walker, the Jazz Age Mayor of New York. Now, the first thing we need to situate here before we get started, Tom, mm -hmm. if it's not obvious to everyone, we are not speaking about the classic comedian from the 1970s, also named Jimmy Walker. We're talking star about star of good times. Star of good times. Oh, no, this Jimmy Walker would have a lot of good times. He knew a lot of good times. <laughs> but no, this is a different Jimmy Walker. Born many decades before. And, and although he did dabble in acting himself, we're discussing New York's 100th mayor, Jimmy Walker, who is a Democrat who started serving as mayor in 1926, but who had gotten into politics long before then. Now, was Mr. Walker here a hometown boy? Oh, indeed he was. He hailed from New York's Lower West Side, Greg, a neighborhood uh, that today we would really call like you know, the village. In fact, he was born on June 19th, 1881 at 110 Leroy Street, which is between Hudson and Greenwich Street. His father was a man named William Walker, and he had moved to New York from Dublin, where he had been born, and married an Ellen Ida Rune, who was a young lady living in Greenwich Village. Together, they had four children, three boys and a girl, and William did quite well. He, he worked his way up from being a carpenter to running his own lumber yard in the neighborhood, and then he got into politics and served as an alderman and local assemblyman. But by all accounts, he sounds like he was a really friendly Irish man about the neighborhood and became a very popular assemblyman for their neighborhood in the village. His popularity boosted by the fact that one of the things that he did was set up recreational piers off in the Hudson River, or the North River, as they called it back then, so the kids could, you know, cool off on summer days by jumping in and swimming around. And just a block away from their house, uh, where there was an old Trinity Cemetery, uh, he convinced the city to buy that up and convert it into a park called Hudson Park, and cart those bones off to another Trinity Cemetery uptown, which... By the way, we have in our book. Mm -hmm. Now, that's interesting that Jimmy Walker was born into a political family, getting his foot in the door. Yes, his, his father, William, had high hopes that at least one of his children would follow in his footsteps, you know, and would enter into politics or affairs of the state. You know, as the family's fortunes improved, he built himself a very handsome house just a block away from their, uh, their previous home. At 6 St. Luke's Place, which is a continuation of Leroy Street as you work your way over towards 7th Avenue, and that's right across from that cemetery. 
that I just mentioned. And it was here in the cemetery that Jimmy and his brothers used to play. This was their old stomping ground, the graves of the cemetery. And it, we should mention that, that that street gets its name from one of the oldest churches in New York City, which is right there, St. Luke's of the Field. That's right. And that today, Hudson Park has been renamed James Walker Park. So he was a New York schoolboy? He was. He went to school at St. Francis Xavier High School. Now, his father had decided that he wanted Jimmy to go off and become the politician and the lawyer. He had one son uh, who went off and became a physician, another who was in insurance, and it seemed like the right thing for Jimmy to do was go off and become a lawyer. But he didn't want to. He wanted to get into something more artistic or at least like more fun, like business. And so he went to LaSalle Business School over on 2nd Avenue. That wasn't a good fit, and he dropped out. And finally, in 1902, he enrolled in New York Law School next to Union Square, from which he graduated in 1904. So we have a young lawyer here. He just graduated, 1904, and ready to practice. Uh, Not exactly. He hadn't taken the bar, Mm. um, and he wasn't really feeling it. He was yearning to make music and and to be in theater. He had kind of gotten the theater bug, you know, when he was a student. He had performed in shows. He had tried out playwriting, even in law school. He had written a show with one of his best friends and schoolmates named Harry Carey, who would go on to uh, (laughs) become a famous actor. Their show that they wrote together called Phoebe Snow and Her Six Pretty Porters um, opened and closed very quickly in Yonkers. (laughs) He didn't try to write a Law and Order-themed show. That would have been very popular today. (laughs) Uh, Perhaps, and maybe Harry Carey could have starred in it. But no, he just continued to hope that he could somehow channel this into a career in theater. He played the piano in the family house on St. Luke's Place. He would, like, try to charm his father by playing some old Irish melodies, you know, late at night. And his father loved that, but also got kind of nervous because it seemed like his son wasn't as serious as his other brothers. Well, this seems to be a pretty good era to get into some songwriting. Oh, sure. Yeah, especially for a kid who just lives down in the village. All he had to do was go up to 28th Street at that time between 6th Avenue and Broadway and stroll along Tin Pan Alley, which was the the name that had been sort of given to this block of sheet music publishers named after the clamor of noise uh, coming out of all of these all these music publishers' offices as people were plugging away on the pianos and creating a cacophony. And and there he actually started writing songs. He wrote lyrics for songs with titles like Kiss All the Girls for Me and There's a Music in the Rustle of a Skirt. (laughs) Classic tunes today. (laughs) Well, you jest, Greg, but the next year in 1905, he had a major Tin Pan Alley success with his hit song, Will You Love Me in December As You Do in May? Came out in 1905 when he was 24 years old. Well, I don't want to make the listeners jealous here, but uh, but <laughs> it's possible that Tom just played this song for me on his brand new piano uh, just a couple hours ago. So um... I couldn't resist. I mean, it's an, it's an amazing thing. You can look it up, listener, online. Just Google, Will You Love Me in December As You Do in May? You'll see lots of actually, you know, YouTube videos of barbershop quartets singing this. It's a, it's a sentimental old ditty of a song, you know, with lyrics, quote, written by J.J. Walker. You can see on the old sheet music that I have here. 
and the words, Will you love me in December as you do in May? Will you love me in the good old-fashioned way? When my hair has all turned gray, will you kiss me then and say that you love me in December as you do in May? You know, which is very poetic and very sad, you know, asking, will you still love me at the end of our lives, um, as you do right now in the prime? But a, a fairly standard lyric, though, of the <laughs> Tin Pan Alley era here. You now, were not impressed when I played that, by the way. You were like, you actually said, that sounds like every other <laughs> Tin Pan Alley song I've ever heard. Well, I don't want to be too negative about it, because it was very beautiful, and, the, and your playing was very lovely, I mm -hmm. have to say. Now, but we're kind of far away from City Hall right here. Right, but this is the world that Jimmy Walker lived in. And came from. And came from for years, you know. And by the way, this, this song remained popular for years. And when he ran for mayor, they used it in his campaign. And he would even run around town campaigning in different neighborhoods and singing it himself. Um, and many of his celebrity friends would sing the song. Everybody knew this song. Mm -hmm. It was the Walker Melody. Well, with these sort of sentiments, these wooing romantic sentiments, this sort of like hints that he's already a bit of a ladies' man right now, right? Or at least that he knew how to write lyrics that would sell on Tin Pan Alley, because mm -hmm. I think they all kind of did write the same yeah. sort of story, <laughs> right? But yes, he had met his sweetheart, Janet Francis Allen, in 1904, just, you know, the year before the big hit came out. Janet was born in Omaha, Nebraska, and she grew up singing in choruses and becoming a professional singer. And she came to New York to take part in a doomed Broadway production in 1904. And during rehearsals, they were doing rewrites on some of the lyrics backstage, and they actually sent Jimmy, or J.J. Walker, to the theater to work on rehashing some of the songs, and that's where he met Janet. So he's dating a performer, working on Tin Pan Alley. Mm -hmm. This is how he's spending the beginning of the 20th century. How on earth, then, does he get to the halls of government? Well, really, Greg, isn't the line between show business and politics a little bit blurry in the first place? You know, they both attract charismatic characters. Uh, there's a lot of performance in both. It shouldn't be a big surprise that he made the this leap. And he was also a trained lawyer, don't forget, even though he hadn't taken the bar. And his father, who had been appointed uh, the superintendent of public buildings, was still pushing his son to do something more respectable with his life than just write these romantic ditties. And so in 1909, he entered politics when he ran for and won a seat in the state assembly. And this took Jimmy to Albany, where he met some really important people, including another assemblyman named Al Smith, who was his mentor and who would go on to be the governor of New York. Well, Al Smith is perhaps one of the most important political figures in yes. New York during this period. So that now he's palling around with Al Smith is pretty significant. And not just Al Smith. He also met a man named Charles Murphy, who was then the head of Tammany Hall. Now, Tammany, which had a lot to do with the fact that he got this seat in the assembly anyway, really liked how Jimmy came from a world of theater and Broadway. He, he liked how he had support in the theater world and also in the sports world. And he was bringing those kinds of people and that excitement over to the Democratic Party. It was a new demographic for right. Tammany. Now, Tammany was the political machine in New York City for the Democrats. Although they had been greatly neutered by scandal in the 19th century, they still had a great deal of power here in the 20th. 
and Walker got their attention and everybody else's because, you know, I think he was channeling some of his performance abilities when he was up in Albany. He just had such a good time in debates, you know. He was having a blast. So he's a politician. He is, uh, you know, an accomplished songwriter. Mm -hmm. He has a, a... lawyer's education but has he passed the bar yet um he rarely passed bars <laughs> <laughs> no no he uh finally uh because of his father's prodding mostly in 1912 he passed the bar while he was still living up in albany and once he had passed the bar now he was newly respectable he seemed like he'd be able to get a better wage because he could make money as a lawyer in addition to being an assemblyman he then proposed to janet And they married in April of 1912 at St. Joseph's Church on 6th Avenue in Greenwich Village, a beautiful Catholic church that is still there today. He was, however, two hours late to his own wedding. Late to his own wedding. Okay, well, that's... He blamed it on his best man. Something involving his best man being sort of sidetracked chasing down a fire engine. But... Okay. And kept everybody waiting. Finally, when Janet walked down the aisle, they played You Know What Song... Will you love me in December as you do in May? And once they were married, uh, they did move into the family house on St. Luke's Place uh, to the third floor. That was their floor. And there he would spend, you know, his days when he was in New York and not up in Albany. Uh, But he went on to serve as an assemblyman and then in the state Senate for many years through 1925. So did he do anything particularly notable in the Senate here into the 1920s? I, I think the thing he's most famous for was that he sponsored bills to allow boxing to take place in New York and uh, for there to be baseball games on Sunday. And he also um, pushed bills to make it legal uh, to show movies on Sunday. He also railed against prohibition-style laws, early prohibition laws, and uh, pushed to have the Ku Klux Klan banned from New York State. But those legislative things were only taking place, you know, in the part of the year when he was up in Albany. Whenever he could, he got out of there and back to his beloved New York City, where he hit the town for these, you know, years, the first five years of the 1920s, hitting the Broadway shows, going to boxing matches, Madison Square Garden, going to speakeasies, restaurants, all over the place, celebrated as this dandy state senator who didn't look like a state senator. He looked like, you know, a boy wonder. A matinee idol. Right, which made him even more famous and, you know, kind of irresistible. But again, that's what he's doing up in Albany as a state senator up until the end of 1925. Mm -hmm. That's nowhere near City Hall. Oh, no. The mayor of New York at the beginning of the 1920s Mm -hmm. was John Hyland, who we mentioned earlier. He was elected in 1918. He was not exactly known as an intelligent, sharp-witted guy, but he was very passionate. His big push during a lot of his tenure as mayor was the subway, was keeping the five-cent fare. It would be a message that he would push literally ad nauseum for years and years, even as other situations and scandals would erupt. Because the subway at this point... In 1920, mm-hmm. was 16 years old. The, mm-hmm. the, the first part of it opened in 1904, and they had kept the fare at a nickel. Believe it or not, it was still a nickel, even with the dual contracts that was beginning to expand the subway into the five boroughs. 
Hyland was also a Democrat and beholden, of course, to the whims of Tammany at first, but then he was kind of swayed by other factions within the Democrats. A certain Democrat, in fact, by the name of William Randolph Hearst, the publisher, and was an office holder himself. So he was sort of the other wing of the Democrats, and they sparred frequently the Tammany versus Hearst wing. But they're all Democrats. Yes, they're all Democrats. So, not surprising from what you just said, Al Smith, who would be elected governor of New York, was not a big fan of John Highland, and they would butt heads. I mean, imagine the governor of New York and Bear butting heads over the subway. That is impossible. (laughs) I can't imagine. Um, the governor, Al Smith, had eyes towards the presidency, could not tolerate Highland, and considered him to be a bit of a dim bulb. So thus, Tammany was actively looking for someone to replace Highland in the mayor's seat. And that, of course, was the party's shining star, Jimmy Walker. He was feisty, attractive, likable. Well, Al Smith must have been thrilled. I mean, here was his old pal from Albany, Jimmy Walker. Yeah, but Smith knew him too well because here we are in the, in the mid-1920s. We already have Prohibition. Walker frequented many illegal spots during this period, and he had a mistress by the time. We're going to get into all of this later. Major party boy. So Smith was uncertain, but he was eventually strong-armed by Tammany in, in supporting Walker. And so in July of 1925, Smith and Walker had a meeting. I read a couple accounts of where this meeting was. One of them was at the Half Moon Hotel in Coney Island. Another account said Atlantic City. But behind closed doors... No one else was there in the room where it happened, so who (laughs) knows? That's true. But behind closed doors, Smith agreed to support and guide Walker as a candidate if Jimmy stopped his party boy ways or at least agreed to drive them deep into the shadows and out of sight. Because Jimmy Walker wasn't just hitting the town, as we'll be discussing, he was doing it with great fanfare. Oh, all over the place and not hiding it. The funny thing is, I think it's really unclear if Walker really wanted to be mayor or if he was just into it for the glory. He would later be quoted as saying, The excitement of politics got into my veins. I had happy years in the Senate, but always my heart was in the theater and in songs. I really was moving against my own desires most of the time. Well, despite some hesitation, he did end up throwing his fedora in the ring and (laughs) announced his candidacy. His charm, his reputation, this fresh demeanor that he had, won over the press, of course. And with the force of Tammany now behind him, he was able to defeat John Highland because they were Democrats. So this wasn't mm. even the main election. Defeated him in the primary. Okay. And then eventually defeated the Republican candidate who was named Frank Waterman. and was Famous be- for Waterman fountain pens. Fountain pens. He's the fountain pen dude. So, yeah. but, but he was you could, But he was easily erased from... From the picture. Well done. <laughs> Walker was sworn in on January 1st, 1926, entering City Hall literally to thunderous applause, received like a celebrity, really more than a politician, with many promises made that day. Many of them would be fulfilled and many of them would be broken. And he's sworn in on January 1st, 1926. Yes. You know, I read at the uh, at the swearing in, a woman actually fainted. Now, this was being 
broadcast over the radio and a woman fainted because of, they were just so packed into the room and it was so warm and he ran off to her side to rescue her and people listening at home didn't hear anything for about 30 seconds or so and thought that perhaps he had fainted or worse. <laughs> Well, you didn't know back then. Right. People weren't live tweeting the event. <laughs> but regardless, 1926. So so take me to New York City when Jimmy Walker becomes mayor. Yeah, we we now need to like zoom back. Now that we've had this personal story, I need to give you um, a few details of what an important decade this is. This is a decade of immense prosperity in New York City, which positions New York in many ways as the capital of the U.S. and even the world. Now, there, there are a lot of factors to this, and we're going to get into them over the next few episodes. Right, but but long story short, things, generally speaking, are finally starting to get better, right, oh, for yeah. the residents of the city. There are massive public improvements taking place. Well, for instance, with mass transit greatly improving, with the, you know, the subway, which we've already talked about, it's now expanding out into the outer boroughs. You also have the construction of bridges with the Williamsburg Bridge in 1903, the Manhattan and Queensboro in 1909, and of course, a bunch of smaller bridges. This is all creating a great infrastructure, of course, for the rise of the automobile, which is filling the streets and facilitating a lot of movement out into the outer boroughs and thus population growth throughout the entire city. In fact, a borough like Queens, let's use that as an example of this growth. In 1920, Queens had less than half a million people. By 1930, just 10 years later, it would be over 1 million Mm. residents. So booming. The city is booming and zooming. Booming and zooming. And working. And everyone has jobs in in the 1920s. By 1923, one-twelfth of all manufacturing in the United States is taking place here in the five boroughs, which is a lot of work. You know, with the war over and with all of these European cities in tatters after the war, New York was able to, like, step up to the plate and develop a lot of new industry to kind of, like, fill the void. And it all came and went through New York's ports. It all sounds very exciting and incredibly suddenly prosperous. Yeah, I mean, the with a city so prosperous, then you also had these new enclaves forming all over the city with people coming here to work. There were brand new Jewish communities. There were larger Italian communities out in the outer boroughs. Then there was the true rise in the 1920s of Harlem with this influx of Southern African-Americans who came into the city and helped create this very unique cultural space and eventually gave rise to the Harlem Renaissance. Wow, it's incredible to think that so many things were taking place in this one city at the same time. Yes, at this very moment, right? I mean, New York became the capital of art, publishing, great writers, illustrators, editors. Pop culture. Yes, New York became the capital of American culture. You know, Tom, three months before Smith met with Walker and had that grand deal, mm-hmm. they would uh, support what well, he would in support 1925. Him, in 1925, there was a writer, a writer named F. Scott Fitzgerald, published a book that would define this era, The Great Gatsby. So you had real estate, money, all the strides in architecture, making New York the most modern and modern-looking city. The Supreme City, or the Empire City, as it's sometimes called. 
so everything in 1925 was fresh, young, bold, exciting. That's why Jimmy Walker is so perfect, is so primed to be the mayor of New York. It's almost like if he didn't exist, you would have had to invent him for this moment. He was, he was like the embodiment of all of these different elements. Jimmy Walker was the king of New York. And when we get back, we're going to follow him on some of his more interesting adventures as mayor of the Jazz Age. We'll get to that after this. This episode of the Bowery Boys is brought to you by Blue Apron. Blue Apron is the number one fresh ingredient and recipe delivery service in the country. For less than $10 a meal, Blue Apron delivers seasonal recipes along with pre-portioned ingredients right to your door. Blue Apron is completely flexible, so you can customize your recipes each week and choose a delivery option that best fits your needs. Now, Tom, Blue Apron also sponsors my spinoff show, The First. Thank you, Blue Apron. And in that show, I mentioned like one unique aspect that I loved about Blue Apron. That It was, first of all, the first delivery I got to my apartment, which was exciting. To your new apartment. New apartment with my empty refrigerator. And of course, it's made my life really easy in the past few weeks because I've been eating so well that I haven't even needed to go to the grocery store. You know, some of the meals available in August include basil pesto chicken with summer vegetable panzanella. Sautéed shrimp and green beans with globe tomatoes, spinach, and orzo pasta. Miso butter salmon with lo mein noodles and cucumber and charmed tomatoes. You can check out this week's menu and get your first three meals for free with free shipping by going to blueapron.com slash Bowery. You'll love how good it feels and tastes to create incredible home-cooked meals with Blue Apron. So don't wait. That's blueapron.com slash Bowery. Blue Apron, a better way to cook. So, Tom, mm -hmm. there's something very interesting about Jimmy Walker, a unique aspect about him. He's extremely magnetic. There have been 99 previous mayors before him, and most of them are not as compelling and as dynamic as Jimmy Walker. What is it that's so fascinating about him? Why are we still talking about him yeah. 90 years later? Mm -hmm. Well, I think it's the way that he really embodied the city, right? And all the things that the city was famous for. High culture, low culture. He was seen at Broadway openings, but he was also seen ringside at Madison Square Garden. And he was a dandy and a man about town. And he tried famously not to work too hard either. So even in that respect, you know, he sort of embodied the easy money, breezy attitude of the Roaring Twenties. And he had support from all of these worlds as well. You know, he didn't just go to Broadway show openings. Um, he counted among his closest friends theatrical stars and producers and writers. And some of the biggest names of Broadway at the time even helped him campaign um, in 1925 and again when he ran for re-election, including Irving Berlin, who wrote a campaign song, We'll Walk With You Walker, uh, <laughs> just for the occasion. Do you have that sheet music? I don't. I oh. need to look that up. Uh, the cast of the musical Gay Paris threw a, um, threw a party to celebrate his success in Schubert Alley, just outside their theater. And he, you know, regularly hung out with George M. Cohan and David Belasco and the big names, you know, marquee names, Greg. It's amazing because the New York theatrical world has a more contentious relationship with politicians these days. You know, right. There was no public chastisement of an administration from the stage, <laughs> for example. Yes. 
No, they loved him. They loved Jimmy Walker. They did. And, you know, like we talked about in our recent show on the Algonquin Roundtable, the 1920s was really prime time in New York's theater world. There were more theaters than at any other time. There were openings practically every night. And most of these theaters were packed into the streets right around Times Square. But Jimmy Walker was known also as a big fan of sports, too. And an important thing happened in 1925 when the second Madison Square Garden closed down on Madison Square Park and moved up to 8th Avenue and 49th Street, which brought boxing matches uh, to Midtown and to the theater district. You really need to look at it as an extension of the Midtown Theater District. The Times Square area, the theater district stretched all the way up to Columbus Circle. So Madison Square Garden kind of joined in here in 1925 even though it focused on sports and other kinds of spectacles. Right. The New York Times wrote of Jimmy later, quote, At the height of his career, Jimmy Walker was one of the most widely known men in the world. Dapper and urbane, he was equally at home with the roughest followers of the prize ring and the social register residents of Park Avenue, and he was equally popular with both. So he could make his way around a Broadway theater premiere, and he could also sidle up to the front row of an amazing boxing match. Mm -hmm. Where else were you looking and finding (laughs) Jimmy Walker during this period? Well, don't forget that the 1920s are, of course, famous, notorious for being the decade of the speakeasy. Mm -hmm. Now, up until Prohibition uh, became the law of the land, you know, there were... Hundreds of nightclubs in this area. You know, there were dozens of them on 42nd Street alone. Well, once the 18th Amendment went into effect and it was illegal to sell booze in the city, these nightclubs went underground, you know, and many of them, most of them, converted into becoming speakeasies. And in going underground, well, you know, they didn't have to live up to certain regulations. They were no longer monitored by the city. Maybe safety inspections and that sort of thing went out the window. And along with that, in came organized crime and the mixing of different types of society, high society, low society, people from Park Avenue mixing with gangsters in the same establishment. Jimmy Walker was heading to those places even as mayor of New York City because he didn't agree with prohibition. He thought it was a scam. He he thought that the people who brought it about were self-righteous and hypocrites. And so he really didn't care too deeply about enforcing those laws. And when he had been in the state Senate, he had actually railed against them. Needless to say, it was lightly enforced during his administration. No, it was not his top priority as mayor. For he was a man about town dressed to kill, you know, and slight, by the way, Greg. He was only five foot eight and only weighed about 125 or 130 pounds. But he dressed to the nines, you know, allegedly changing three times a day. Twice he changed his day clothes and then he would dress formally for uh, for his evening out on the town. He was a style icon of the 1920s. I mean, he was known the world over for his ensembles, for his outfits. During the research of the show, Tom and I both read some kind of amusing sources, some older sources Mm -hmm. on the life of Jimmy Walker. Uh, One book I read was called Gentleman Jimmy Walker. And I just have to read you, Tom, this incredible anecdote. Please. From the book, which is written by George Walsh, quote, 
A visitor from England about this time was Captain A.J. Murdoch, an arbiter of men's tailoring, who had come to America to attend the National Association of Clothiers Convention. His first act after debarking was to rush to City Hall to pay his respects to Walker. Mr. Mayor, he said unabashedly, you have a simply marvelous figure. (laughs) Wait until you see the 1927 city budget figure, Walker replied, referring to a budget increase of almost 10% that would mean the highest taxes ever for property owners. Well, I think you are the best-dressed mayor I have ever had the pleasure of meeting, said Mr. Murdoch. I wear New York-made clothes, Walker protested. But I really envy your figure, said Mr. Murdoch. You will always have a good waistline, unquote. I mean, could you imagine an anecdote like that aimed at like any... Rudy Giuliani? Like Ed Koch? We saw Rudy Giuliani's, I think, waistline. Remember when he did that little (laughs) drag routine? Yes. It wasn't a figure that Mr. Murdoch might have idolized. No, but you know, in all of these books, and I too read... A different book called Bo James, The Life and Times of Jimmy Walker by Gene Fowler uh, that came out in the 1940s. And he goes on and on about his about Walker's relationship with his tailors here and abroad, because when he would travel, he would also pop into tailors. He was always getting new suits tailored for him. You know, he had a special way of having them tailored because he had such narrow hips. Um, and big, broad shoulders, or he would exaggerate his shoulders and then kind of come straight down. He he had to somehow hold up his pants. I don't know. He didn't wear suspenders. There's some long explanation of how his pants were even being held up in the first place. The point is the fact that we've spoken this long about the clothing that a mayor is wearing, and we haven't talked about his accomplishments yet, is pretty incredible. He was known for his wardrobe. On a 1927 trip he took to Europe, he allegedly took 47 suits with him, (laughs) you know, just because he was going to be gone for six weeks. That's one a day. And he was actually gone from New York all the time. He went on all sorts of trips. Yes. And well, he was criticized eventually by his critics for the, the way that he traveled about. I mean, he spent something like 143 days traveling on vacation in his first two years. And he wasn't just golfing. No, he was going to Europe. He was visiting, you know, he was visiting dignitaries in London and Paris and Rome. He met the Pope. He met Benito Mussolini in Rome. He also enjoyed going to Cuba. He did. Right after winning the election, Mm -hmm. he headed down to Florida and then off to Cuba. So how could he afford all this good living, all these good times? Well, it wasn't really clear how he was affording this. He did give himself a $15,000 pay raise. But still, that didn't cover all of his bills. He had some important benefactors, like the publisher Paul Block, who would happily pick up Walker's bills for his hotel suite, for his lavish wardrobe, for his wonderful meals. There were other people picking up the tab. A political reporter for the New York Times in the 1930s said of Jimmy Walker, quote, He didn't give a damn about money. Who gave it to him? Who got it? where it came from, as long as he or a friend had it to spend around on a good trip, a good party, a not-so-good girl, unquote. Hmm. Well, he was clearly having a good time, because right from the start, he started throwing parades, issuing proclamations, anytime anyone of note was coming through the city. 
While he was mayor, he gave more than 300 speeches on the steps of City Hall, welcoming celebrities and dignitaries to the city. He gave military parades. Aviator Charles Lindbergh came through town. He gave him a ticker tape parade. Queen Marie of Romania passed through. And onto him, you know, in one of these big ceremonies, he had to pin a a medal onto her blouse, um, which caused him a bit of trepidation because she was rather voluptuous. And allegedly, he said to her, Your Majesty, I've never stuck a queen, and I hesitate to do so now. (laughs) And she said, Proceed, Your Honor. The risk is all mine. To which he retorted, And what a beautiful risk it is. (laughs) You know, he was so known for giving keys to the city to people that Eddie Cantor actually parodied him in a Ziegfeld Follies where he's giving keys to every single person and actually ends up running out of keys. (laughs) (laughs) And you can bet that he was actually there in the audience for the premiere. He was. Yes. Another time, a 500-pound block of cheese was presented to him him by a Swiss delegation, to which he looked aside and said, Will someone please run out and get me a cracker? (laughs) He said to Marconi, uh, the, the Italian physicist and inventor of the wireless technology, Um, He quipped that, well, we don't know much about transmission here, but we have some mighty fine receptions. (laughs) So, yeah, so So, Walker, all of those those anecdotes from Bo James, the book, by the way. I am genuinely surprised that he didn't make an appearance down at the Algonquin Roundtable. But but I think many of his friends were regulars at the Roundtable. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't just wisecracks, you know, that defined him. He also had his own, he also had his eccentricities. He was kind of neurotic. Amazingly, for somebody who spoke so often before crowds, he didn't like being in crowds. You know, he hated getting patted on the back. He didn't he didn't drive. He hated going too fast in his car. He didn't like to be in elevators. It made him nervous. He had a nervous stomach. But yet he loved speaking before a crowd. The week he got back from celebrating his win, uh, he had gone off to Florida and he came back all tan and looking dapper. He attended five banquets on the same night uh, to celebrate the 100th anniversary of 42nd Street. You know, that was back in the day when they threw a street to party. (laughs) Well, if you're going to choose a street to throw a party for, that's the one. What's incredible is that all of this is going on, and he still has his day job, obviously. He still has his affairs at City Hall. Well, he had his affairs outside of City Hall, too. But but no, he was getting things done in the mayor's office. And you're going to talk about that. Mm-hmm. But he was really known as America's nightmare because he was, yes, he, he worked at least a couple hours a day in City Hall. But then he would go out and he, he saw it as his duty to also be the mayor of New Yorkers at night. The Walker welcome wagon. And I'm cracking about him having affairs, but he was married at this time. He was still married married to Allie, his wife. It seemed like they had some kind of an arrangement. But really in the 1920s, for many New Yorkers, what Walker did in his private life was his own business. There was just something so cosmopolitan and free about the way that the mayor flirted about the city. And so, yes, he started seeing and being seen with other women, often actresses. Uh, One was an actress named Yvonne Shelton, who he called Little Man. Hmm. (laughs) Because she called him J.J. 
Lil- oh, it was kind of a cute little, you know, like a cute little nickname he had. She sang and danced alongside the stars of the day, uh, like W.C. Fields and the Ziegfeld Follies. And she would dine with him after her shows, you know, at Sherry's or Leone's restaurant in a private suite in Midtown. That still seems rather public, right? I mean, everyone knows he's married. Right. Uh, his wife, Allie, I think that she always thought that he would come back to being a family man. You know, f- for example, after the election, they were living at the Commodore Hotel in Midtown. She was pushing him to move back in to the family house down on St. Luke's Place. Because being in the family house might remind him of his parents who had passed away by this point. Um, it might remind him of his responsibility as a family man. What he thought it was kind of dumpy and run down, so she convinced him to renovate the place. And so he did a nice renovation, for which I don't think he paid the bill. So they moved back in in April of 1926. She had high hopes that he'd be home every day after work, you know, like <laughs> Al yeah. Smith did as governor. He mm-hmm. might have been out doing important things, but he always came home to his family at night. Not or, so. Or at least Al Smith was seen with his wife at mixed social events. But no, Jimmy Walker was different. He attended all those events, usually without his wife, and he didn't just come home after work because he had social engagements to attend to. You know, there's another anecdote in our book regarding Jimmy Walker about perhaps his better-known mistress, Betty Compton. Yes, she was born in England, And she moved with her family to Canada when she was seven years old, and then later to New York to make it as an actress. On the night of November 8th, 1926, she was appearing uh, with stars such as Gertrude Lawrence and others in the premiere of the new Gershwin musical, OK. And after the show, he was taken, Mayor Walker was taken backstage to meet Gertrude Lawrence. But really he had his eye on Betty Compton And he immediately invited her to a dinner party, but she rejected him. And he would continue to find excuses to invite her to social occasions. And she would always reject him because she was wary of going out with an older married man. After all, she was only 23 years old. And by this point in 1926, he was 46 years old. So their relationship actually wouldn't heat up until late the next year. And was Mrs. Walker aware of Betty Compton's presence? She seemed not to notice. She was also busy with her own duties, which included in those first years taking two long tours throughout Europe as the First Lady of New York. Well, that's convenient. Yes, because it left Jimmy alone in the city. Mm -hmm. But later that year, in August of 1927, he did take this grand European tour that I mentioned before with his 47 suits and his wife. And the night before taking off, there was a star-studded group of dignitaries who threw a banquet for him before leaving, including senators, um, Congressman LaGuardia, Al Jolson, and many others, causing Jimmy, of course, to turn to the crowd and say, wow, I never knew that so many people were glad to see me leave town. (laughs) So those are some marvelous anecdotes regarding Mr. Walker. Although I have to say, listening to his foibles and his social nightlife engagement... It seems a little strange that we're talking about those things first before the things he did as mayor. But to be quite honest, those things defined him more. In terms of the city itself, Jimmy Walker was merely a manager. New York already had this well-oiled machine of government and private investment that was basically 
driving the growth of the city. And so it really only needed a figurehead. Somebody to turn up in the office. Every, mm-hmm. But still, he'd have 150,000 employees. Oh, yeah. I mean, it, he ran one of the largest cities in the world and one of the most powerful, one of the most that was growing powerful by the day. But there were other people who were actually running it for him. Right. There were, I mean, there were already well-established leaders all through New York City, and, you know, many of them related to Tammany Hall. So he just needed to kind of oversee it and put a face to it and keep himself out of trouble. Okay, but he did actually spearhead some really large city projects during his terms. Well, Well, he was echoing the boom of private development that was happening in New York. And so he did spend lavishly on city projects. Did you know, Tom, that New York's prime source of revenue in the 1920s was actually taxable real estate? And the price of real estate was rising. He was a ferocious supporter of the new subway system. He would sometimes go down into the tunnels. He would have photo ops in these new, newly dug tunnels and would, would joke that he would be the first strap hanger of a, new, of a new line. So even though Highland, his predecessor, had started this huge expansion of the subway system right. and the creation of the IND or the independent lines... He inherited that project and oversaw its completion. Right. I mean, it should be noted that one of his first things that he did as mayor, Walker, was go to Albany and ask them for more money for subway projects. So it was Some like, things have never changed. Yeah. <laughs> he also attempted to improve city sanitation. And another big campaign promise is that he wanted to install a citywide bus system. Now, eventually, his efforts would lead to the development of the newly empowered Department of Sanitation, which happened under his watch in the late 1920s. Okay, but was was he able to set up the bus system? Well, his legacy is a little spottier there, for he, he got in bed with a company that was a little bit corrupt and couldn't exactly provide the city what it needed. Also, you you had powerful borough presidents who didn't want a citywide bus service. So he didn't quite accomplish what he wanted to. But this leads to his trickier legacy in fighting corruption. For New York was a hotbed of illegal behavior. It was all about who you knew, who you paid off, and most of it was overlooked. We've already talked about how he overlooked the speakeasies and a lot of these illegal places where liquor was being served. Right. When Walker was first elected, he was really into cracking down on corruption. The police under Walker cracked down on it quite aggressively until they got a little bit too close to rackets that were directly or tangentially controlled by Tammany Hall, who, of Mm -hmm. course, had gotten Jimmy Walker elected in the first place. So it seems like he was a bit conflicted about getting too hard Mm -hmm. on different factions within his administration. Right. So he kind of starts the term with this real enthusiasm for cracking down. He had a a mandate, really, to crack down on crime. He had a lot of women date, too. (laughs) Little A little mandate. (laughs) But by the end of the term, by the end of his term, he would pretty much turn a blind eye towards cracking down on corruption. Mostly by firing and demoting people who were actually good at it. Wait, he was firing people who had been assigned to investigate? 
and and weed out corruption? Yes, by the end of his term in in 1928, many accomplished detectives were eliminated or demoted because they were too good at their jobs. He would eventually hire as the police commissioner of New York City a man named Grover Whalen, who was a former department store manager who dressed as well as Walker did. So they got along famously at the tailors. But Whalen turned his force against from cracking down on crime to cracking down against union organizing and even immigrant groups. So are you saying that this Grover was something of a puppet? <laughs> He was a puppet for Tammany Hall. So even here in 1928, near the end of his first term, he was still beloved by the general public. And part of that has nothing to do with Jimmy Walker himself. It has to do with this feeling of elation and new creation that's happening in New York City while Walker is mayor. He is the recipient of a lot of goodwill because the city was transforming under his first term. And let us not forget one other major factor we've hardly even mentioned. The stock market through the 1920s was roaring forward. I mean, that is the roar of the roaring 20s. People were making money hand over fist, including the mayor who had all kinds of investments Mm -hmm. set up. This was an era where it seemed like everybody was getting rich. And you know this culture that he is helping define, this midtown Manhattan culture of Broadway shows and speakeasies? It was in the 1920s when the center of New York gravity became midtown Manhattan. It had up until that time been City Hall. But now in the 1920s, this was now the center of New York City. A lot of this has to do with the unbelievable amount of construction that was happening. According to author Donald Miller, between the years 1921 and 1929, a new building went up in New York City every 51 minutes. Whoa. (laughs) And uh, that's incredible. 51 minutes. 51 minutes. There was so many. Well, you were talking all five boroughs, the the amount of construction. But the concentration was here in Midtown and particularly on 42nd Street because skyscrapers were now transforming the skyline at a rapid pace and completely turning this area of New York into something that looked entirely different than the rest of the United States. Towers that were reaching dozens of stories into the sky in these sleek silver forms that were in a brand new architectural style called Art Deco. This boom in construction would reach its peak actually in 1931, and we'll get to the peak in another podcast. And Tom, when you mentioned earlier about hanging out with the Park Avenue socialites the park avenue crew that's right well well that was a world that was also created during the era of jimmy walker in the 1920s what do you mean he created park avenue well you know how grand central buried its tracks at the beginning of the 20th century and created acres of brand new real estate well in the decades following this creation of real estate the area was filled with office towers and apartment complexes this by the 1920s We would be in the age of the apartment and the center of wealth in New York City would shift from Fifth Avenue, which would become a retail mecca to Park Avenue. And so thus the idea of what it means to be wealthy and what it means to be glamorous in New York would then be defined in the 1920s by Park Avenue. 
So it's really then not a big surprise that something else big happened in 1928 toward the end of his first term. You know, in, in 1927, Jimmy and his wife Allie had taken that big tour of Europe uh, with all the suits. Well, when they came back home in 1928, perhaps Allie had hoped that their time away and on the road would help their their marriage a bit. And unfortunately, that didn't happen. For when they got back in 1928, Jimmy moved out of the family home down in the village and into the Ritz-Carlton in Midtown, and he would never return home again. This demonstrated a great deal to, to various people. This demonstrated to Betty Compton that Jimmy was serious about her. And she finally acquiesced and allowed herself to be seen around town with the mayor. To Allie, his wife, well, she thought that this move was just temporary and that Jimmy was just being Jimmy and he'd moved back. But to Governor Al Smith, who himself was preparing to run for president's In his eyes, Jimmy was acting recklessly, and the governor was actually afraid that this could lead to a city hall scandal that would hurt his own chances at winning that race. And to Jimmy, I I think he told himself that he was in love, even though he was still married to Mrs. Walker and would remain married to her for the next five years, he finally had made a move. I think this also says something about his character in that he feels that he is almost invincible and he is about to come up to his new re-election campaign in 1929 for his second term as mayor of New York City. So imagine having that kind of invincibility mm-hmm. and also this perceived invincibility. Perceived, right. 1929 looked as if it would be the greatest year in the history of both New York City and in the life of Jimmy Walker. Now, there's one more event that I want to mention that happened in 1928 because it will reverberate into our next two shows. Quoting from the New York Times. On November 4th, 1928... Arnold Rothstein, who declared not long ago that he had given up gambling in favor of the real estate business, was shot, perhaps fatally, at 11 o'clock last night. He would end up dying from his injuries. Rothstein was was a notorious gangster and gambler, and his death would begin a chain reaction that would shake New York in the late 1920s. It would shake New York from its underbelly all the way up to City Hall. Join us on the blog, BoweryBoysHistory.com, where we'll have lots of pictures and supplemental information about Mayor Jimmy Walker, Betty Compton, and all the rest of them. Join us in two weeks for Chapter 2 of our Roaring Twenties miniseries. Now, some of you might have wished that we had spent a little bit more time imbibing mm-hmm. in the... Throwing one <laughs> or three back. In the speakeasies of New York. Well, just you wait, because in two weeks, we're going to take this show underground. For those who would like to read more about Jimmy Walker... You can find two books in the New York Public Library, Greg. Gentleman Jimmy Walker, Mayor of the Jazz Age by George Walsh. And Bo James, The Life and Times of Jimmy Walker by Gene Fowler. That book is available at the Jefferson Market Library in their reference section. And I want to thank Frank and all the librarians at that fine 
Library, perhaps my favorite in the city, <laughs> um, for guiding me to it. And we're not the only ones to do a three-part series. The Bowery Boys spin-off show, The First, is also embarking on a three-part series in probably the most opposite possible way <laughs> from this. It's a three-parter on the history of Benjamin Franklin. So if you've ever been interested in the stories of his inventions or you grew up fascinating in this enigmatic person, check out that show. The first episode came out last week. The second show, Lightning Strikes, will hit the airwaves next week. And we'd like to thank our supporters who have joined us on Patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash Bowery Boys with their small monthly contributions that really help us pay the bills and help Greg and I commit to producing a new show every two weeks. We thank you with special audio features that you can download or go straight to your smartphone. You can read all about that on patreon.com slash Bowery Boys and patrons. That's right. We're going to be playing Jimmy Walker's <laughs> song on the piano. Will you still love me in December as you do in May? Just for you. Greg, you're going to be singing. I'll do my best. <laughs> on that note, thank you very much for listening. Have a great New York week, whether you live here or not. See you real soon. Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil.